Kendall Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. Every week we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is filmmaker Billy Clift, a Hollywood native who started his career as a makeup and hair man for the fashion, film, television, and music video industry. Eventually following his lifelong dream of becoming a director, his first feature film, Baby Jane, is a parody of the cult classic, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, starring Betty Davis. When we sat down, Billy told us how it all came about. When I was 15, 16, 17, and I was at Hollywood High, I was fortunate to star in almost every show that they were putting on. If it was a big musical, I would get the lead. You know, so uh, uh, I thought that that's where I was going to go. That was my dream, was to be an actor in Hollywood, you know? And I even uh, got an agent, I had a manager, I had everything that you would typically need to have, and they were good. And I was going out, as soon as I got out of high school, I was going out for projects all the time. Uh, I had a problem, is that at 18, 17 years old, I looked 27. And that didn't work. You, you know, they want you to look younger than you do, than you do older. So they had a real problem. I would go in for leads that were, that were supposed to be 25, 26. And then they'd find out you're 17. I said, I said we, we, you know, we can't do that. You know, <laughs> I got very, very frustrated. And uh, so I went into modeling. So I was modeling for quite a few years from like 17 until 20. I modeled constantly. And uh, that was easy. But I, I always ended up in a tuxedo. I was always a dad, a young dad. You know, <laughs> I was never like some of my own age, you know. So, uh, um so hair and makeup, I would always watch the hair and makeup people going, well, that seems really, really easy. I mean, I think I could do that. And I would always do my friend's hair and my sister's and everything like that. And I'd be, it was kind of naturally, I was good at it, you know, because I actually understand the logic behind it. To me, it's all logical to, to put something and do something like this. It was all like, you could understand all the pieces that you'd put together and you could create this. And it all made sense to me. So it became easy. So I decided to become a hair and makeup artist. And uh, at 20, I went into the most prestigious hair salon in, Be uh, in Beverly Hills. And I went, well, the first thing I'll do is I'll uh, apprentice at whatever the most important place there is. And I did at Menage a Trois in Beverly Hills. And I walked in and I got the job immediately and uh, um, worked there for a year under someone. And then I went, well, I'm done with this. I want to be the hairdresser. 
Uh, and uh, then I got a few uh, celebrity clients, the first one being Elizabeth Montgomery. And uh, I was going to her home um, uh, once a week to do her hair at that time, just doing her hair. And uh, I went, well, what do I need to be in a salon for? She's paying me cash <laughs> in my pocket. And then more and more of that started happening. Uh, so uh, then I started doing commercials and print and on and on and on. And, but my goal always, I would always like watch when I'd be working anywhere, would be watching these amazing directors. I'm going, that's what I want to do. I want to become a director. But I just did not feel, I, I kept on doubting myself that I could do anything like that. Like I, I didn't think that I could, I, could, I, I didn't, I, did, I couldn't see myself jumping to that at that time. I remember working on the set of Switch, which was Blake Edwards. And I was mm -hmm. doing uh, Jo Beth Williams. Uh, I was doing her hair and makeup for that. Uh, uh, if you know, remember who she is. Yeah. Poltergeist, on and on and on. And lovely, lovely lady. Uh, and I would watch. Blake Edwards was the most amazing, amazing director uh, every morning he would come on set and he'd go to each person and, and good morning. How are you today? He'd know their name and he'd go all down the line and he would just treat everyone with the exact same respect and kindness and put everyone on the same level. And I'm going, you see, I think I could do that. That's how to be a good director, you know, and I, I would just be in awe on, on watching him. So, but I, I stuffed it. I stuffed it and I continued on as doing a, a hair and makeup for many years. Did you ever get into special effects makeup? Uh, yes, I did. I did. I, I definitely could do basic stuff like bullet wounds and scars and lots of blood. I never went into like anything uh, more monster, but I could do anything that, uh, you know, and especially when you, when you became a stars hair and makeup person, they didn't want anybody to touch you except you. So it was, I was kind of forced to learn. <laughs> yeah, of they course. They would just say, oh, no, Billy knows how to do it. I remember the first time an actress did that. Oh, Billy knows how to do it. And they're like going, yeah, you do? And I'm going, yeah, sure I do. You know, <laughs> I just had to like immediately go and study under someone and, and, and teach, you know, have them teach me how to apply and, and do all of that. And it was so much fun. I loved it. And then from then on, I knew how to do it. So it was great. Cool. What other directors were you able to witness before, like while you were still waiting to be a director yourself, like anybody in particular other than Blake Edwards? I, I can't, I can't put a name to anyone that I can pop off the top of my head. It's really funny because I have a friend who um, I can always ask who did I work with, ma'am? Did I do, 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 do you know, and, and they'll go, Oh yeah, you did this, this, and this, and this, and then you did this and like, Oh, good. All right. You know, <laughs> I mean, the amount of actors that I've worked with, I don't even remember. They're, it's so big, it, honestly. Uh, no, uh, I get it. I totally like, get it. I can't even remember. I remember when people were extremely nice, and I remember when someone was extremely rude, of course. But anybody in between, it's hard for me to remember. Yeah, there's a chapter in my book where I tell people that when – and you don't know this if you're not thinking about it. And I didn't think of it at first, but after a number of years, I realized this was the case, is that people in entertainment, especially if you're a filmmaker of any kind, you meet more people in the span of a year than many people do in a decade. And it's impossible to 
remember everybody. I mean, there was this one time I, I had met Joel Schumacher. And when I saw him the second time, I said, Hey, Joel, blah, blah, blah. You know, because I, I felt like I just saw him the other day, but to him, I was just one of the 10,000 people he's met this year. So it's like, he has no idea who I am. He told me that. How many times have you had someone come up to you and Hey, how are you, Steve? God, it's so good to see you. We had such a great time with that thing we did, right? And I'm going, yeah. And they're, and they're just that vague. Yeah. <laughs> so and you have like, no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I never I... want to be rude because, you know, I mean, I believe them. There's no reason for them to fabricate anything. I'm well, sorry, but my brain just pushed out a lot of other information so I could take in some new, I guess. How long did you flirt with directing before you took the plunge you know it was all in my head I never did anything about it um uh, it was just I would start writing things and want to direct them so I did do that I forgot about that you 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 brought it did I did remember like writing little stories that I would want to do something with and there it went that that was it I think it was, it really took, uh, when Elizabeth, going back to Elizabeth Montgomery, only because she was such a dear friend, more than anyone that I had ever had in such a deep connection. uh, When she passed, it was so dramatic that I did write a book about it. And then I wrote a, then I was, I just said, why don't I try to write a script about it? Hmm. And uh, I decided not to do anything with it because I didn't want it. I made the choice of not wanting to, that it wasn't necessary, but it was a great process to do that. And that was when I went, you know what? I think I can do this Uh, after working very hard. And this was probably about 13 years ago. Uh, Did you have a good support group to encourage you? Yeah. I love that somebody's working on a plumbing somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Amazing. I, I'm in my, um, you know, studio, which is a mess where, where I edit. <laughs> Good. Yeah. yeah, no problem. <laughs> which, of course, I also use as a set because recently it was a set for a short film that I did not that long ago. But, and so I'm just slowly getting it back into order. <laughs> Amazing. Baby Jane was the first feature. Yes. Tell me what led to even just the concept. How did you think of this? And tell us and tell us what it is for those of us who don't yes, for yes. those who don't know. My first feature film was called Baby Jane, and it is a parody of a film called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, which was starring uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And if none of you know who that is, either one of them, then this is a good thing for you to do is go and see the film and then rent my film. <laughs> Baby Jane question mark. I, I had seen the actor. Uh, Matthew Martin, who plays the Betty Davis character in a play called um, Christmas with the Crawfords. Uh, It's constantly played still to this day. And it's about Joan Crawford on the night of Christmas Eve. And she's being interviewed by a radio man and her her daughter and her son. And then all of a sudden, all these people come by. Betty Davis or Baby Jane, the character Baby Jane, ends up being her maid in this silly spoof. And I was watching this guy, Matthew Martin, and I was going, I'd never seen anyone do Betty Davis in this way because he didn't do it broad. He did it real. 
And I was able to sit front row of the small little theater, you know, the one of those ones where you're, it's all the same level. You're right there. I, I could have, I could have tripped and I would have been on the set, right? And, uh, or the stage. <laughs> and I was just enamored by his ability to make it real with a, with a, a wink of silly. And I went, wouldn't that be funny if someone would do a, a parody of Baby Jane, I don't, I don't know, very much like Young Frankenstein or, or uh, uh, in, in, the, in the realm of Young Frankenstein and Mel Brooks to someone like uh, uh, polyester or anything of that realm. That, and, and wouldn't that be funny? All of a sudden it just started permeating. And I was just like, you know, and I talked to uh, a, a director who I really liked and I said, I'm pondering with this idea. And he said, well, the smartest thing for you to do as a beginner is to attack something that is, is something you can really wrap your head around and something that you can do, of course, inexpensively and something that has limited sets and kick ass with it. I mean, just go in and see if you can kick ass with it and keep on going as a filmmaker. Just don't, don't think you're going to become Spielberg. Just attack something that you can really actually... Uh, wrap your head around. And I went, that makes perfect sense. And I could, I could wrap my head around baby Jane. I knew that I could figure out how to make it inexpensively. Uh, this was in San Francisco at the time. Uh, I went there to live for a while. After Elizabeth Montgomery died, I left and I moved to San Francisco for a while to kind of figure out what I wanted to do for my life. So that's where all these things started coming up. When I, a, a death is always a good time to like reevaluate. What is it I really want to do? What, where do I really see myself in 10 years, 20 years, whatever? Six months later, I did it. I, I went through the original script and I, I, it just all made sense to me of how I could parody it out. And I was able to get, a, I had a couple of, um, uh, at the time, they weren't doing crowdfunding in the same way they are today or they did, but we were just having parties at the house and sure. uh, having people and we had, you know, pots to put money in and, and um, we raised kind of enough money to do it <laughs> as Always. you expect, like, right? Yes. And we finally had someone come out, uh, come in um, and give us a, a decent little pot. And then the house came and, you know, just everything kind of fell into place. And so that was my first attack at being a director. And then it worked. Well, hello, Miss Jane. I'm Detective Bill Kovacs. We had spoken on the phone. We've been keeping an eye on the house. You've been keeping an eye on the house? Everyone's snooping. Even the gigolo who just wanted to get paid. There's nothing in there. Just an old cat. An old stinky cat. She's going to die. Oh no, she's just got a headache. Until it all becomes Edwin. too much. I knew that I had to like, just take each step at a time. I had no idea what was going to happen to it after 
I got it finished or whatever. I just, I really just focused on each section of the process. And I knew that that was the smartest way because then I wouldn't get overwhelmed, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at something that I didn't know really well of what I was doing yet. Uh, thank goodness. I'd been in the industry all my life. I understood lighting. I understood the process. I watched it all the time and I studied it. You know, I was with so many actors and on sets from a lot of commercials was what, what I did a lot of. So it, it wasn't unfamiliar to me. I, 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 I grasped it, you know, and I understood lighting very much because even when I was doing uh, an actor or an actress, uh, I would have to go to the DP and tell them how they wanted to be lit. And I would sit there and work with their lighting people so that they'd be lit the way they want to be lit. Oh, interesting. Yeah, of course. Things that you would learn, you know. And uh, so there were things I learned, you know. So uh, that's that's how that particular project came. And then I started getting good reviews. That yeah, tell awesome. me. Like, would, when, like Variety, I wrote down what they called it. Very funny and a smash, right? Like when you heard or when you read that, I mean, I don't know when Variety's review came out in, in relationship to the others, but when they started coming in, how did you feel about it? I was shocked. I was honestly shocked. For, uh, one of the things, though, is that even as my, I kind of, as I said, I put everything in, in, in um, boxes, so to speak. I didn't really get to that point yet where I thought someone was going to review it. Mm. Because I really did. I didn't like go, okay, now I'm going to do, I, oh, that, now we're going to get into frame line. I got into frame line, right? Yeah. Cool. Uh, what does that mean? Oh, we're going to be at the Castro Theater. Oh, we get to the point where... It's selling out the Castor Theater. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> you know, and you're, you're like, okay. And then, of course, you know how that is, is that then every film festival in the United States picks it up, wants it. And you right. don't even have to do anything. You just, they just ask, can we please have a copy of your, your film? We want to see it. And then they tell you when they'd like to put it in. I mean, that's just how it happened, right? And then I do remember, I remember when I was told that Variety had reviewed it and uh, a, a friend sent it to me and I was like going, oh my God, they actually liked it, which also is what I needed to know whether I was going to continue because I honestly said to myself that if I'm not good at this, I'm not going to pursue it. If, if I can't get it, if I, if I don't get it, then I, I'm not going to just you know flail around. Uh, uh, of course, I would have probably tried to like see if I could get better, but there comes to a point where you have to do look at yourself going, you know, I'm just not good at this, but maybe I'm good at something else. Maybe I'd be a good DP, you know, because I do understand. I, I shoot now almost all the time uh, myself and uh, I, I'm strong at it and I could just do that. So, yes, that was that was quite a, a quite a, a revelation of realizing, oh, maybe I'm OK at this. <laughs> Maybe I could do this, you know? Amazing. Yeah. You know, it's like when Variety says your movie is, is great, they, are, are, they mean it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like... Because they had no reason not to be, you know? They could easily have taken another road and went, this is trash. I was actually right. reviewed by um, Fangoria. I was actually reviewed twice by Fangoria. They reviewed it and gave me the most scathing review you can imagine. Ripped it apart, said, this is a piece of garbage. No need to bother. Three months later, they re-reviewed it. They said, we didn't look at it correctly. We weren't paying attention. We get it now. Well, I had a lot of reviews saying it wasn't campy enough. Oh. It wasn't silly enough. 
my whole concept of making it real didn't hit right for a lot of people because they thought it should have been a complete joke. And I felt that that's really cute to go camp if you're in that way, completely silly, if you're doing a 20 minute short. But if I really wanna take people down a journey where they're gonna actually care about these characters, I had to start shifting it and making it real. And that was my, that was my biggest thing is like, I, I didn't wanna do it like things that I'd seen in the past, you know? I wanted to make sure that it, it all of a sudden started shifting and that all, and you got more background information on who these people are, even if it was silly information, but at least you got more understanding of who they were, more than the original film. And I did the same thing with Hush Up Sweet Charlotte. I gave them way bigger backgrounds than they did in Hush Up, you know, in, in, in Charlotte, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and I was going to ask you about that because what I loved about it, both of those so much is that it was on the, the hairline between getting to camp. Like it was just before camp, right? right. And I, that's what I loved about them. But it was still, I mean, the subjects, Betty Davis being the most serious person in the world is already camp, <laughs> you know, like to right. some degree. Exactly. So, it was, so I was going to ask you if, if you had a method by which you got to that fine line without going too far, or did you know when, when not to, or did you know if you accidentally did to then bring it back? My instincts, I just went with my instincts. And yes, I think I always made sure that the, the actors played it for real. Even if the dialogue was silly and ridiculous, play it real. Play it, just, just say it. Don't try to make it funny. And, because I knew who they were. You have Barla Jean Merman, Matthew Martin, Mink Stoll. Uh, um, uh, and I just, you know, just, just do it. This is a real situation. You're very concerned. On and on and on. Don't make it big. And, uh, uh, but yet, I mean, there was melodramatic moments, of course, in Charlotte, but, <laughs> yes. but, but, but still, and that is what it's going to sell it to the audience. The audience is going to start caring more. If you're just up here all the time, it, it just, it's a silly movie and that's fun, but I don't think it's going to make people want to come back and watch it again. Filmmaker, Billy Clift. Another wonderful guest is cult icon Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him. We didn't speak <laughs> after we finished filming Pink Flamingos. I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. When we come back, Billy talks about directing Mink Stoll and a passion project about his cousin, the classic movie star, Montgomery Clift. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. I'm back with Billy Clift. Was it easier to get Charlotte made after the success of Baby Jane? Yes, it was. I... I I, it was it was easier, much easier. It was easier to get people on board. My, mind you, with Mink Stoll, she sat in Chicago and watched Baby Jane with me. And that's the first time I'd ever met Mink Stoll. And after the end of it, she turned to me and she says, oh, my God. And I said, so if I ever did Hush, 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 Sweet Charlotte, would you play the role of Velma? And she said, would I? <laughs> and so it took a while. But it happened. I called her and she said, I'm there. 
I'm there. Amazing. You know, she's, I loved working with her. How did you like uh, directing her? Oh, easy. Um, uh, Just, you know, I mean, uh, she's uh, a pro, you know, she comes on set and she's there a hundred percent. She's listening. She's paying attention. She knows her lines. And uh, it was a joy to, to be there. Um, and it's really, really funny because the first day of shooting and she didn't know, she didn't know me from Adam really. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were working on a, a, a very, the set that we were working on was a green screen basically on a, on a little um, balcony. And if you remember there were balcony uh, shots and there was a green screen behind it. That's what she walked into. And it was some guy's house, right? (laughs) So that was the first day of shooting. So it looked a little like, hmm, are we doing this this with toothpicks and scotch tape? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And and she said, you know, I've worked on, she, even even after like a couple hours of working, uh, she looked at me and she says, I worked on cheaper looking movies than this. (laughs) And I went, and the next day we were in the mansion. We had, you know, <laughs> everything and, you know, every, the catering came in and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden it looked like a movie set. And I went, thank goodness. She doesn't have to think we're all doing this, you know, over here at this person's house. <laughs> well, totally. But don't forget, I mean, she told me, you know, John wasn't famous when they started and they were making movies, just, you know, five or six of them and their friends and they're getting together in somebody's garage. And, you know, it wasn't until... I don't remember if she said hairspray or crybaby, but it wasn't until then that it started becoming, you know, more elevated as far as production goes. Right. Yeah. So she totally understood we're in our car and we're going to jump out and film that corner, you know? <laughs> right. Right. These are part of a trilogy. Can you tell us about that? The Betty Davis trilogy? Yes, I, I was hoping to, I'm hoping to do um, uh, Dead, Dead Ringer which was Betty Davis's next film after Charlotte, uh, which is where she plays twins and she kills one of them and becomes the other one's rich, one's poor. And uh, um, so we still have that in hopes. I actually almost had the money and it fell through as it does. Uh, But uh, uh, that is the the dream to at least have three of these pictures so that we have baby Jane, hush, hush, hush up, sweet Charlotte, and then dead, dead, dead ringer. Uh, um, so <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot that, wait. That'll be a lot. Of, it will be a lot of fun to do, and I, I better do it pretty soon because <laughs> Matthew, Matthew, you know, I mean, all the actors. I was going to have uh, um, Barla Jean Merman also in it, and uh, possibly even pull back um, uh, Mink to play the uh, uh, Dowager. If you remember, dead, dead, mm-hmm. dead ringer. There's an old wealthy Dowager in it, and bring back some of the same people, you know, to kind of continue the whole thing, you know? So we'll see if that happens. Uh, as I said, we, uh, we almost had that in the bag and then they pulled and, uh, but they did give me money to do something else. So uh, I couldn't have been too upset, you know, at the same time. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've always felt that projects come and happen when they're meant to. Yes. When you see every, all the parts just kind of magically start coming together uh, you, you really just kind of hit that flow. Mm-hmm. Then you just feel really good. And you can tell when you start a project and you push and you put all that energy into it. And I always do. I'm going to put that 100% energy, but you also have the intuitiveness to go, oh, this isn't happening. This is, we're hitting a brick wall here. 
So I got to pull back a little bit and allow allow it to do what it's going to do and just just keep on having that alive and in my back of my head to know that at the certain moment and you just never know when that's going to be right and you uh go oh now now it's happening and and you and you take care of it and you can do it which is very exciting exactly i i feel that even also while filming even though you wrote it one way maybe it's supposed to happen some other way totally right on how it unfolds and where where the actors want to go with it i'm always interested on on their take uh on on how they see it uh, as well. Uh, I want to, because you just never know, they may have something that you didn't even think of and, and they may bring, may bring something brilliant. And sometimes they don't and you have to go, no, this is the way it's going to be. But, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, I always like to do, um, uh, I always tell them to like, let's do this as written. Let's do it my way. And then um, at the end, let's do a few takes and let's see where we can go with it. And Oh, that's good. Them- yeah. And that way I've got what I know that I want and what I need, but then maybe they'll give me something. And I did that even with, with uh, ba- baby Jane and hush up sweet Charlotte. That first, give me this, give me what's written down. And now, all right, guys go off. You never know it, whether it will be a look that I can pull or, you know, you never know what you're going to, what you're going to find, especially when I had such amazing uh, comedians as well, who really knew how to, how to do it. You know, it's so exciting to watch them. Do you approach every scene the way you just described? Yeah, I, I do. Even if it's a, a serious, uh, uh, I just finished a short film in November um, that was very serious. It's a Holocaust short that I, I wanted to write after a big documentary that I'm doing uh, about a painting that was stolen by the Nazis took me to Poland. And I started really looking at the um, uh, Auschwitz and all the different information that was there, especially about the gays. I wanted to go, what about that? And so we found some true stories and melded them in together and made a short that I want to turn into a feature. And even in that, I just, I did the same thing. I said, give me what I wanted. And now let's see different takes and different ways that we can put this another way, uh, push it another direction and see what we get. And uh, it, you can really get some amazing jewels from that. I mean, we're a collaborative, right? When we're doing a film, everybody comes together. You get people that you really trust. And, and hopefully you have actors that you really trust. And you give them that, a little bit of that space so they feel like they're honored. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've all ran into actors, though, sometimes that we have to kind of hold real tight to. <laughs> yes. Or, or the ones who are lovely and yet you really do have to craft their performance in the editing room. Oh, in the editing room, especially. Yes, it's just like, all right, let's see. Where can we find a good glance instead of, <laughs> you know, maybe it happened before I said action. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I Sometimes, tell my yeah. DP to roll without them knowing. Exactly, me too. I do too, because sometimes they're more natural and casual and then as soon as that action goes, they're going, Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want that. I don't want Nora Desmond, you know? <laughs> totally. Any great words of wisdom or advice that you carry with you today? Just really treat people with respect and kindness, and it'll come back to you. Pay attention to them. Understand everybody's the same. I've already mentioned Elizabeth Montgomery twice, but definitely she was the most endearing uh, incredible human being that I'd ever 
worked with or been around, honestly, as a human being. Uh, she really did do that. I mean, we would, it would always shock me. She would also be very good at remembering names, which I'm sorry, I can't do. <laughs> she would remember everyone's name. She would meet them once and she'd, she'd go, oh my God, there's Jonathan. I'm going, Jonathan? Yeah, don't you remember? We met them last week and he came by the table and said hello. You know, <laughs> I'm going, oh my God, how did you do that? You know, That's amazing. I think that's a, a good basic information is just treat people with respect. It's going to come back typically. And if they're not, it's because there's stuff going on with them. You know, exactly. it has nothing to do with you. Right. Right. You never know what's going on with somebody else. No, you don't know where they are at that moment in time. Right. Um, speaking of old Hollywood, your cousin is Montgomery Clift, the movie star, and you did the project Monty. And yeah. you've been wanting to tell his story for a number of years that I know of anyway. Tell me more about how that came about into fruition and what is the desire behind wanting to tell his story? I think the most important thing is that if people, uh, first of all, most people don't know who he was or is. Uh, he was a very important actor in the 40s and 50s. He was as big as Tom Cruise was when at the big, at his moment or or uh, so many other major stars of today. He was the it star at the time. Everyone wanted him in their film and no one knows who he is really. And then there's the others who always go, oh, what a tragic life. Well, there's so many aspects to that life. And it was an interesting life, a fascinating life. And I, and, I mean, his best friends were, were Marilyn Monroe, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, of course, very, very close friends. I mean, these major, major people who they don't even know that how close he was to them. And those are the people that he surrounded with. Judy Garland was his idol, you know, and um, I just felt that it was important for his legacy that people learned that he was just a multifaceted human who had problems and that he wasn't always drugged up and drunk. He also had uh, physical problems that made him act that way. Uh, and uh, just exposing all the different aspects of he as a human being. And also what it was like to be in Hollywood during that time and how you were treated, how you were expected to be. And um, also pushing aside his sexuality. Uh, so there was also that. He, he, he had such a thing with um, Rock Hudson because he was actually jealous of Rock Hudson because in Hollywood, Rock Hudson was very open with his sexuality in many ways. You know, like people knew sure. that he was gay. And in some ways he was much more open than what Monty could allow himself to be. He felt that that would ruin everything if everybody found out. The real insiders always knew who, what, what was going on with each person. Uh, so that's, that's really my goal. And so I made the short film a few years ago, and it has been a few years ago. It's now playing on Here TV. They bought it. Uh, cool. And uh, it is basically a dream. It is the last day of his life. And this is how the feature is going to be, which I've written. And it remembers all these important moments that made him who he is. And that's what the movie is. So it's him laying in his bed, remembering, and then we go there and we're having these experiences. So in the short, often they show up right on the edge of his bed, talking to him. Uh, as he remembers something, they appear. It's also gonna be 
kind of skewed because his memory is going to be off. So he can't remember whether he was with that person or that person. And that's how memories work, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a labor of love. And I think it's uh, important for his legacy as well as it's important, I think, for people to see that there, a human is many faceted. And there's so many things going on that we can't just, as we do as humans, it's just labeled as this. And he wasn't just this. He was a, an amazing human being. Um, I did not know him personally, but his brother, Brooks Clift, would come to the house for uh, Christmas and, and uh, event, Thanksgiving and stuff, Easter, whatever, and he'd come to the house because he lived here in, in Los Angeles and Monty, of course, lived in New York. And mind you, he died in 1967. So, you know, I was, I was kind of young. <laughs> you weren't even born yet. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about the Advocate Project. The Advocate Project came pretty soon after I finished Monty. And uh, it actually kind of stopped my momentum of trying to get the feature going because of it. But they, uh, uh, the Advocate came to me and um, they just felt that for some reason I was the right person to do it. I had all, actually already had uh, something in my mind. After 45 became president, I felt that we needed to do something. I needed to do something as a writer, director that could assist in people learning things. And there was a particular thing that happened right here in Silver Lake where I live uh, at the Black Cat. And yeah. so that particular experience that happened for the LGBT community no one had heard of. Again, one of those things that nobody had heard of. And I said, oh, I want to do a documentary that starts with that and then see where it goes. So I had already started filming it uh, for about three or four months. And they had heard uh, that I was doing it. And they called me in and I told them about it. And I told them what my idea was and what I think I should do with it, which would go all the way to this moment in time, which was actually, what, two years ago now. Um, and, uh, they said, we think you're right. We think you're the right person. You seem so passionate about it uh, that we think you're the right person. They handed me a nice size check where I could for almost two years only do that. So that stopped my world in a way because it really becomes everything when you're, mm -hmm. when you're doing a documentary like that. Plus we wanted to do it quickly. And if you know, you know, documentaries can last five to 10 years when you're doing shooting a documentary. I have my other, I have another documentary that I've been doing for three years now. It had to be done at a certain time for the 50th anniversary of The Advocate. So that was one of the reasons as well. And so it is, it is documenting that particular instance was when in, in 1967, New Year's Eve, uh, there were a bunch of uh, police officers inside a gay club right down the street from where I live. And as it turned midnight, because it was illegal for gay people to kiss, even in a secure place inside, that they immediately started beating the pulp out of the patrons to such a degree that people ended up in hospitals. Uh, and uh, there was no thought about, all right, everybody, let's go put you into prison or let's put you into the the uh, uh, cells, you know, no, they wanted to beat the shit out of them. They hated these people. And what caused, what happened from it was, is that two months later, 
they organized uh, an extremely huge protest. And it is actually the largest protest ever that happened in, for the LGBT community. And nobody had heard of it. There was, uh, according to one of the only people that I found that was there, he said three or 400 people were there in front of the black cat, quietly going around like a typical old protest with your signs going in circles. And uh, uh, that had never happened before. So that was crucial, you know, that people know about it. And then I just went from there and I tried to keep on finding things that maybe not everybody knew about, but I also made sure that I touched upon all the things that people knew about it. I wanted to have something that, and then of course the advocate said, well, oh, I kicked my thing. Uh, the advocate said, you know, the advocate came out of that as well because nobody wrote about it. So the advocate came out of saying, we don't have anybody writing about what we, what's happening in our world. So that's where it came out of that particular experience. So it was a perfect uh, bringing into this storyline as well. So I, uh, what's great is that the movie isn't just about the advocate. It's about the LGBT fight and particularly focusing on Los Angeles because a lot of people don't know about Los Angeles and how it, it participated then the advocate constantly comes in because the advocate was always there. They were the ones who were writing it up and taking pictures and on and on and on. So I could, I could uh, keep on combining it with that. So that was an amazing process to do. I, I feel so uh, fortunate that I got to do that. And uh, it brought my a passion to doing documentaries from that. You directed Jane Weedland. Yes, and uh, um, it was a little movie I did after Baby Jane. It was my second movie, and I wanted to do something. It was a protest film. It was about um, Proposition 8. And it was all about a little geeky guy, a gay guy, who decided that six days before the Prop 8 might happen, that he was going to get married at a protest. And Jane played his uh, uh, secretary, but very, you know, very close assistant. And she was a delight, by the way, as you know her as well. Um, and uh, it's a, a silly little comedy that I just felt that it was important to make because of that particular moment in time. And it just documents um, uh, the Proposition 8 problem that occurred. So that was my second feature film. A lot of filmmakers have talked about their sophomore problems. You know, it's like when they're doing their second movie. Did you have any or was it just smooth sailing? No, it was a problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was uh, uh, a challenge. A Let's. I, I like to say the word challenge. I yeah, say there's no such thing as a problem. It wasn't a problem. It was. A, it, you're right, and it's true. It was a challenge. It was a great challenge uh, because I wasn't doing another film like. Well, they immediately, and that was a problem with doing Baby Jane, is they immediately thought everybody thought that that's what I should be doing next. Mm. I should be doing something exactly the same, right? It's like a singer who puts out a big hit. Your next hit better sound exactly the same way, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that was a fight right there for me to get financing. And I finally sure. I got, I got um, uh, an individual who finally did give me the financing to, to make it because of the, the subject matter. Mm. Uh, I learned a lot on that. And I'm so glad that I learned. And, that, and that's what it is, is that all these projects that we do, we take something from each one of them, because each one of them have their own challenges, right? No matter what, even if it's smooth sailing to, to a point, there's still challenges, you know, you know, and, and you learn so much from it. And it just everything that I've done is just makes me a better and better director, I feel, and, and filmmaker in general. 
And that, I definitely learned a lot. If you have another five, 10 minutes or so, I would love to op open this up to our group. Does anybody have a question for Billy? Timothy does. Timothy does, yes, Timothy, please. <laughs> hey, Billy, uh, nice to meet you. Really nice meet you great well. information. Thank you for sharing so much about uh, your journey in your life. It's been Thank you. Thank nice you. to hear. Um, question for you, uh, uh, as a director on set, what is it that you want and need from your makeup department and hair department to get that actor ready on set, having done that sort of thing? So if you could just kind of share, because, you know, this is where they're prepping, they're getting their mindset or whatever, but just tips or hints or whatever to deal with that. I'm a director-producer type, so Wonderful. that's where I'm looking Wonderful. at things. It's, it, it really is exactly what you said. I expect them to assist in getting the actor into a, a good mindset and to feel have a moment of lightness and that someone actually cares about them. That's the first person who they're really going to be greeted by besides maybe their... Uh, if you have someone who's driving them there, you, that might be the first person or a PA who's taking them to wherever they are. But often, really, who's going to be there and is touching them. A hair and makeup artist is touching them. It's a very intimate experience. And you really, uh, you need them to really be, uh, to have the right feel. Well, hair and makeup people have got to have the right tone and feel and be able to be intuitive enough to know how to deal with that actor. And that's something that, I mean, uh, um, I, I would feel very badly for uh, hair and makeup people that work for me. <laughs> Not that I'm mean, but I'm definitely very, very hands-on. And like, if I don't like something, I'll go in and fix it. You know? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys, but we don't have time. <laughs> that's really it. It's, 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 you, you were right on that. It's like, you know, be be careful with them. They're important. Hair and makeup people are important. <laughs> well, and I've always said the the thing about you know ads who just scream at the hair and makeup people, and I'm like, you know, first of all, it takes a steady hand to do some of this stuff, and when they're shaking out of being yelled at, it's not going to look very good. <laughs> you know, no, it does not work. It does not work. You know, um, that that is crucial. I also don't like screaming first ADs. I want you to bug me. I want you to bug people, but do it respectfully. I do not want screaming on the set ever. Yeah. Uh, I never want to scream and I don't want anybody else to scream, you know? <laughs> you know, I, tr I will always want a very um, calm to the best of our ability set so that, and, and, and never a feeling of there's a problem. No one should know if there's a problem ever. Yeah. You know, it's like, even if there's a problem, no one should know. We're just going to take care of it. Filmmaker Billy Clift. You can see his films, Baby Jane, Hush Up Sweet Charlotte, and A Long Road to Freedom, The Advocate Celebrates 50 Years on Amazon Prime Video. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please leave a review to let us know how we're doing. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. 
For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going.